Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Welcome back, adapters. In these unsettling political times, I take great comfort in John F. Kennedy's words that they still inspire idealism in Americans. Two of my guests are shining examples of this idealism. So in this two-part episode, I talk with two 13-year-old climate activists, and we have another edition of Australia Adapts with Dr. Johanna Nalau. Okay, so some background on this episode. My first two guests actually reached out to me via email, and part of in their email was this quote. We've listened to your podcast and haven't heard an episode regarding youth, the generation affected most by climate change. Well, how could I resist getting these two on the podcast? They actually came to Washington recently to lobby their congressional delegation on climate issues. So we coordinated doing an interview at the U.S. Capitol. It was a perfect day for it. I hope their words and idealism inspire you. Okay, also, Dr. Nalau from Griffith University in Queensland, Australia, is back in talks with Dr. Jean Polutikoff of the National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility in Queensland, Australia. You'll learn more about what Australia is doing on adaptation. Okay, some housekeeping. America Adapts is now a nonprofit organization and seeking financial support from you, our listeners. I want to thank those who have already generously donated through the Flipcause Donate page, which is you can find in the show notes. I truly appreciate all the support that's come in, and thanks to those who are also using the recurring donation option. Long-term support will ensure the podcast grows and has the resources to record on location, like I did in Uganda, and to build out this platform for promoting the field of adaptation. So thank you so much. All right, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, so every new episode is just waiting for you. And also, I love hearing feedback from you on the episodes that you've enjoyed, or if you have issues with an episode, please let me know. The highlight of my week is hearing from the random listeners. I'm at americaadapts at gmail.com. Okay, upcoming guest. It's a packed schedule all the way through fall. I have Mark Morano of Climate Depot coming up, along with Erica Bolstad, an adaptation reporter who just recently was with Climate Wire at E&E News. I also have the Graduate School of Design seminar presentations at Harvard University. I went up to Boston to record that. And I have a very interesting conversation with Dr. Pat Michaels, the policy director at the Cato Institute. Think free market adaptation. So some great guests coming up. All right. So let's jump right into this episode. Hey, adapters. First off, I am in the shadow of the U.S. Capitol, and I have two very special guests, Charlie Abrams and Jeremy Clark. Hey, Jeremy. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hello. And I'm Charlie. These are two of my youngest guests that I've ever had. So first off, why are you in the nation's capital? You two are from where originally? We're from Portland, Oregon. Uh, and we're here because we're lobbying with Citizens Climate Lobby. Okay, so I want to give a little backstory of why we're even here talking. And so who who's going to tell me the kind of the history of why we're talking here? Who contacted me first? So I contacted you when I was sick about a couple months ago, trying to reach out to another podcast. And so part of the reason is that you had been listening to my podcast, right? Yeah. 
And so there's something that stood out why you felt you needed to be on the podcast, right? What, what reason was that? I think it was just because it seemed like you were the type of person who could really help get a message out. No, no that's okay, but you're flattering me. But the reason is that you guys kind of hassled me because you said, I'm not getting enough young guests on. So how old are each of you? Uh, so we're both 13. Okay, you're right. I've never had anyone that young on, so I appreciated that you reached out and you said, all right, we're the next generation of climate change activists. Okay, here you are in the nation's capital doing some really cool things, but what are you doing back home? That's part of the reason you're here today. So back home, we are trying to basically accomplish the same things that we're doing here. We're trying to pass a something called a fee and dividend, um, which is a very similar policy for what we lobbied for yesterday. And we're also um, trying to sort of strengthen our community so that in three and a half years or hopefully sooner, we can get we can get back in action on the federal level. That is pretty amazing that you just described some of the legislation that you're trying to pass. Any sort of thing you want to add to what he's saying on why you're here uh, lobbying? Um, so back home, we also have a blog that kind of got us started, and we're also part of Our Climate that was originally Oregon Climate, and we're working with them back home, and now since they're going nationwide as Our Climate, we can also work with them in D.C. Okay, so what do you talk about on your blog? We, we originally made our blog so that we could educate youth on climate change, but since then, we've spread to... Uh, just educating the public and about climate change. All right. The first thing you should do is start off with the name of your blog and the URL. So our blog is called Two Green Leaves, and you can find it at twogreenleaves.org. Okay. Are you guys going to start posting now that you've done this trip? Yes. Wait, what do you mean? So just how you write on your blog, I'm sure there's some great content that was generated from this trip. Yes, we will be. Get, uh, we will definitely be writing about this trip and some of the legislation that we lobbied for. Okay, I've got one of the dads here with me. Dad, please introduce yourself. I'm Chris Clark. Okay, and so tell me, how did these kids get started on this issue? So Jeremy was in fourth grade, and he gave a speech, uh, and Charlie was in the class about climate change, and uh, they they were friends back then, and were hanging out on a fishing trip. Or on a fishing trip, on a camping trip, and decided to do something, and that was a blog. And fortunately, Charlie's dad, Howard, is a programmer and could do all the technical stuff. And ever since then, that's given this a great platform to to educate others and about the causes, effects, and solutions to climate change. There are armies of people trying to communicate what climate change really is and what it means for the planet. And so it's clicked with you. So what does climate change mean to you? So climate change to us kind of means our future. Since we are just 13, we can already see the effects and impacts right now, and we know they're going to get more drastic as we grow up. Okay, so tell me a little bit about Portland. I've I've been there before. It's a lovely city, but uh, do you do a lot of outdoor activities there? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I like to backpack in the summer, and I'm also a runner, so I uh, go outdoors a lot to exercise and prepare for races and stuff. So, who did you lobby yesterday? Was this just your congressional delegation? So yesterday we lobbied with Earl Blumenauer. Uh, what? Yeah, so Earl Blumenauer is the representative. Uh, for our district, and we also lobbied with Peter DeFazio, who's a representative to district to the south, and then 
Congressman Keewen, who's a Nevada representative, uh, just to educate uh, his, him and his staff about, you know, what we were, uh, the carbon fee and dividend. So did you actually get to meet with any of the members? We were able to meet with uh, Representative DeFazio in person, and then it was staff. Uh, well, actually, Representative, Representative Blumenauer was also there. It was uh, he and his staff, and there were a lot of us there, so it's kind of a mix and mingle. Okay, and so it's not often that you actually get to meet with a member. So that's great that you actually get some face time with a member. Congratulations on that. So what stood out for you? What did you really enjoy about the experience? I thought it was an amazing thing just to be, just to like go to Washington, D.C. and make a change because, I mean, most people who are visiting Washington, D.C., like us, you know, you're you're walking around, you're looking at all sorts of landmarks like the Lincoln Memorial and Supreme Court, the U.S. Capitol. But this time we were actually doing something and we got fully immersed in we got fully immersed in the United States federal system of legislation. And um, it was really cool to see how things worked. Well, you have a leg up, I think, on most Americans. They have no clue on how this really, you know, how democracy really works. So I just congratulate both of you. But what about you? What stood out for you as you were lobbying? So we've lobbied um, before a couple times with our climate in Oregon. And lobbying there, I lobbied with about three other people in Oregon, well, Salem, Oregon. And then we come here and we have a meeting with, or we have a, like, uh, what was that called? The... Yeah, we had a conference with over 1,300 people, and I've never seen that many climate activists in one room. And lobbying was also different. Our group, one of our groups had about 12 people in it, and we've never had an experience with that many. Also, um, something that didn't exactly involve lobbying, but it was just a really cool experience. My dad and I stopped by uh, John Lewis's office and uh, said hi, and we also stopped by Bernie Sanders' office because we're big fans. Awesome. John Lewis is a legend. And I think one thing I wanted to add is that if you can't make it to the federal level and you're hearing this show, get out to your state level. I mean, for me, that was the most surprising thing, that you could just walk into your state house and you could talk to your district reps, and they actually want to hear from you. And particularly if you're you know, a, a kid, youth, parent with your kid, go out there because it really leaves an impression. And even here on the federal level, uh, before I came, I wrote a letter about the recent uh, health care bill that was passed in the House. So I was pretty upset. And I was meeting with, I wrote it to Blumenauer, and I was meeting with uh, him and his aide. I'd gotten a letter from Blumenauer, and as we were leaving, I, I shook the aide's hand, I, Kevin's hand, and he just pulled me aside and said, by the way, thanks again for writing that letter about health care. We passed around the office. And I was completely amazed that, you know, these things, these stories that you tell do make a difference. And I would just encourage everyone to, to write and stay active. And I think that's a really good thing to remember, especially now. That's a great point because there's a lot of form letters that go to these offices and they, they kind of mentally file those away. But those sort of personal letters that they know someone took the time to write, they really do make a difference. So, yeah, that's very encouraging to hear. Okay, so you guys, how you listen to the podcast. I talk a lot about adapting to climate change. And so what it, about Oregon? Do you, do you hear about these news stories of how the state or the cities are adapting to climate change? Do you know of any examples that you could share with my listeners? Well, I haven't, I mean, in in Oregon, at least where I'm living, it's not necessarily completely evident that climate change is a problem because it's indirectly affecting us. Something that I would like to do to adapt, or at least my plan, is when I grow up, 
um, to go to college and then get out of college, graduate. Um, I'm planning to move to Stultz Day, Michigan, or somewhere in, up, in Upper Michigan, because that is one of the only areas in the United States that won't be drastically affected by climate change. The rest of the world will, well, the rest of the country will be having quite severe problems, although these places that don't have all these effects uh, are going to face problems of overpopulation because everybody's going to be moving there. Well, I hope you stay in some communities that need your help, so maybe you'll reconsider moving to Michigan, and I think you'll actually appreciate Oregon a lot more than Michigan in the short term. I want to challenge both of you, and I just asked you about how Oregon's adapting to climate change is do a little research and then maybe the two of you could write a blog post on that and i would love to share on my social media and saying okay these are kind of things because you'll be surprised that oregon's dealing with issues like drought and ocean acidification is now affecting the pacific northwest and you guys should bring some attention to that so i hope you take up that challenge all right so we're almost done here but i am so impressed that you are 13 year olds coming to the capitol lobbying your congress people my 13 year old oh my goodness i can barely get him to make his own breakfast what would you say to other kids out there like you who are not even thinking about these issues they're thinking about what most kids are thinking about what can you do to inspire them to take a little bit more action out there so like we said we started in fourth grade and the best thing you can do when you're younger is start small. So the easiest thing for us then was to start a blog so that we could grow to what we are now. And once you start small, then you can do a lot of other things, get noticed by climate organizations or ask to join climate organizations. After we made a blog, we called OPB ourselves to ask for an interview. And then from OPB... Our climate, which at that point was Oregon Climate, found out about us. And then from Oregon Climate, CCL found about us. And we just kept growing and growing. Okay, what about you, Jeremy? I would say that the best thing to do if you aren't really familiar with uh, climate change or climate change activism is to really try and expand your community because once you expand your community, you have an amazing platform to try and get your own ideas out about climate change. And I think um, a great way to do that is to... well. There's so many ways to do that, in fact. Um, the All the cl- climate change organizations, they're all very outgoing, and they're all willing to, for anyone to join their organization, no matter if they're a kid or an adult. So that's where I would start. Okay, some amazing thoughts. Any final thoughts, Dad? Yeah, and kids, I'd say, you know, if you as you find out more and you want to do more, you've got leverage. You know, you can tell your parents, hey, who are you voting for? What's your position on climate change? And I'll clean my room when we go lobby. I was going to ask because I have to bribe my children to do positive things. Uh, Saving the planet isn't something that inspires them. And so any extra perks like extra allowance or ice cream? No, I think it's just, you know, extra encouragement and support. And, and when they say they're interested in whatever it is, if it's climate change or other things, just try to listen and respond and, and ask them, what can I do to help? There actually is a perk. When you grow up, you get to have a planet to live on. <laughs> what an amazing final message. All right, we're going to go around just final thoughts with Jeremy and Charlie here. Thank you so much for all the support that... Um, people like you have given us and uh, the people who have helped us advance our message and um, become the people that we are today.
Awesome. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. And for those listeners out there, you're hearing some local flavor. We're on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol and so all these different sounds. But uh, Charlie and Jeremy and Dad, I want to thank you for being here. And I'm looking forward to publishing this podcast. And I hope you guys keep listening. All right, everybody. That is all from the U.S. Capitol. Thank you so much, Charlie and Jeremy. So, hi, adapters. So, this is Dr. Johanna Nala, and we are coming around the third episode of Australia Adapts. And in this episode, I'm interviewing Jean Politikoff. So, Jean is the director for the Australian National Climate Change Adaptation Research Facility, which goes by the acronym NCARF. So, in this episode, we talk a little bit about how Jean got interested in adaptation research. And so, she was previously based uh, in the UK and has been very involved with IPCC um, processes for a long time. So it's great to have somebody on the show who actually has a long, long-term experience and can reflect a little bit about the how adaptation has changed um, over time, and especially the kind of interaction between climate science and um, climate policy as well. And we also discuss the differences differences between. Europe and Australia. So <laughs> a lot of the times it seems that in Europe, the, a lot of the adaptation planning is quite forward looking. And so we keep talking about the impacts in 2050, what might happen. Whereas in Australia, something happens and we're like, oh, it's just another Thursday. So it's, it's quite interesting to have that kind of difference in, in time scales and, and the way some of the extreme events and impacts are, are unfolding. And anyway, so I hope you enjoy this episode and Goodbye. I thought we could maybe discuss how you got interested in adaptation. So I understood that so you've been uh, you were the, with the UK Met Office before, and you have a very strong background in climate science, which most of us, you know, who've come later to adaptation don't. What made you interested in adaptation in particular? I started out at the University of East Anglia. Mm. Well, actually, I didn't. I started out oh. at the University of Nairobi. Oh. <laughs> so that was my first professional job mm. in the field of, well, I qualified as a geographer, so my first mm. professional job. Before that, I had worked as a teacher of English as a mm. foreign language. So my first professional job was in mm. Nairobi, and it was at the University of Nairobi, and it was in the Department of Geography. And my PhD was in climate science, so it was urban climatology. It was looking at in poten- the potential for enhancement of rainfall due to um, urban effects, in particular the creation of turbulence. So um, I worked at the University of Nairobi, and it was a post that was funded in part by the British government under an mm. aid agreement with Kenya. Okay. Uh, but then Margaret Thatcher came into power, so her, <laughs> the wheel goes full circle, doesn't it? So I can see parallels with what's happening mm. in the United States at the present time. But what it meant was that that aid agreement was cut off. And so my additional funding, mm. which came from the British government, terminated. And so there I was. I couldn't stay in Kenya. The local mm. salary was not sufficient. Yeah. It wasn't sufficient for Kenyans. They all had shops and taxes and yeah. so forth. But that option was not open to me. 
So I had to come back. So I got a job at the University of East Anglia, and that that was um, a research job. So there wasn't a lot of formal teaching. It was mm. mainly working on contract research. And as the um, the research base of the European Community through the framework, uh, the various fr- um, framework agreements progressed. So gradually over mm. time, I just built up a base in the European community doing research in a series of research projects, which addressed mainly around um, statistical downscaling and how you could use that mm. in order to inform impact analyses. So I'd already mm. made a shift from being more of a climate scientist towards actually thinking about how you could use climate mm, science through okay. statistical downscaling to actually think about what the impacts were. So that, that was the sort of mm. first stage. So I was at the University of East Anglia for a very long time. I was there for very close to 25 years, but uh, not close enough to get my 25-year award. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so 24 years and some mm. months I left to go to the meteorological office. But I didn't go as a meteorologist. I went to be the head of the technical support unit for the uh, fourth assessment okay. of yeah. group two with Martin Parry, who was the oh. co-chair. Oh. Because I don't know if you know how it works, but in, in the IPCC, each working group has two co-chairs, one from a developed country and one from a developing country. Mm. And the co-chair from the developed country, his government pays for the tech, or his or her government pays mm. for the technical support unit. Oh, okay. So the co-chair was Martin Parry. Mm. He was from the UK. So the UK paid for the technical support unit. And it was managed through the, the meteorological oh, okay, yeah. They started out with a, a head of TSU, but that didn't work out. So, uh, who was actually a Met Office employee, but that didn't quite work out. So they did, um, they advertised the post publicly and I applied and I got the job. So then I moved to do that job and that was about five years. And I was coming to the end of that job and, um, I could have stayed on at the Met Office. Uh, I forget how long my contract was. I think it was for five years and I'd mm. four or something, but then. Um, Griffith University rang me out and said, you have this bright, shiny job and you haven't applied for it. Why is that? And I said, who are you? I have to say that I'd never heard of Griffith University at that time. And so that was in adaptation. So that was another shift again. Mm. So I would say that um, in summary, Mm. there's never been a burning desire to do more than work in climate change in some area on some capacity. Mm. Then I have just moved where the work was that looked interesting. So mm. gradually I've shifted away from the climate science mm. so much and into okay. the first the impact area and then, then the adaptation area. And so I understood also that you were as the head of the uh, technical support unit for, for this uh, fourth assessment. So you were part of the team that got the Nobel Peace Prize. Yes, on the yes, wall. Uh, the wall is, uh, is the award, yeah. 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 So how do you how do you think that kind of did that change how people viewed climate science or the importance of climate change in general? Um, I th- possibly, yeah. It's very it's very very hard to know because there's such a mm. strong element of skepticism out there that mm. you're um, always uh, faced with that people somehow. Um, no longer seem 
to respect science. They don't. The, the, mm. There is no level of respect amongst the general community, I think, or a very low level of respect for science in the mm. general community. And part and parcel, I mean, there are, there are a number of aspects of that. So, for example, I was at a small gathering of friends yesterday and there was a, quite a long conversation about immunisation of, mm. of children and, and actually in that room with four people in it, there were, all aspects of the debate were no. represented <laughs> from, you know, right yeah. from the two extremes. Um, so it's not just climate science. Mm. You see it in, in many areas. And, and we've just explored the fridge down the corridor, which yeah. has many, many different kinds of milk. Yeah. You know? people, people have a greater sense of their own ability to manage their environment and their life, I think, than was the case. 20 or 30 years mm. ago. And part and parcel of that is the, f- the sense that you can understand the science and you can make your own decisions it about it. it. That's mm. right. Uh, and climate change science, then there are people who would say to you that they don't believe in the climate science. Mm. So what difference did the Nobel Prize make? And I would say... Very briefly, perhaps, it made people pay much more attention to the IPCC, Mm. and that maybe lasted for a couple of years, and now I think it's almost totally forgotten, Mm. except by the people who were awarded the prize, and maybe their their peers. Mm. But the job of chasing people down to say to them, "You're, you're part of this, you have worked in mm. some capacity for the IPCC. You've been an author yeah. or, or a contributing author or a reviewer. We went right back through the books to the first assessment and produced a list for the Secretariat in Geneva mm. and everybody who had ever worked for the IPCC in any capacity whatsoever, if we could find them and yeah. they were still alive, because <laughs> not all of them were. Yeah got an award, which I thought was great. I really mm. enjoyed doing that, and I thought it was a very worthwhile thing, and I had some very interesting conversations. <laughs> yeah, because I think, I mean, I think a lot of scientists, you know, we produce the information, but then it's, you often don't know even how it's used. Um, oh, no, you don't. No, no. So it's, but in, because I know that you, you know, in your current role, you've done a lot of the kind of, exp, you know, science policy kind of crossover, and how do you explain uh, for instance, adaptation uh, to policymakers. So, what have you found? What have you found that has been the most kind of engaging way to do that? Well, the first thing I would say is that if I had known when I began my career what would happen with climate change and, and the, the politicisation of climate mm. change, I don't think I would ever have chosen that area mm. of study. It was never anything that I would want. And I'm sure that applies to 95% of the people mm. who are working in climate change. And they didn't ever, you don't think to yourself, you know, I'm going to go into this really contentious area of science and I'm going to fight my corner. Mm. I don't think you do. I would, I would be looking for something that would allow me to have a more peaceful existence. So I think that's the first thing to say. So I don't feel particularly well qualified to talk about how you communicate science or, you know, what's the best approach to policymakers because I have never received any training. No one has ever Mm. 
taken me on one side and said, no, Jean, you ought to do it this way. <laughs> That's not the right way. You should do it this way. And I'm, I don't, I honestly don't know if anybody knows what's, how is the best way to, because we're all so bad at it and the <laughs> results of what we're doing are so poor. So I did actually sit and watch the video of the recent congressional, the U.S. Congressional uh, Committee on Science and, and their exploration mm. uh, of uh, climate change science and the um, scientific method. They had four, amazingly, that committee had four witnesses and three of them were sceptics and one of them was not. So how representative were those witnesses, you know? just sit there and you think, well, what is going on there? The one witness who was a a strong advocate of the reality of global warming was Michael Mann. And he, above everyone, seems to be the person who is never tired of trying to find Mm. the corner of climate change science. Many people have fallen by the wayside and said, I can't go on with this. You know, it's just doing too much damage to myself, my family, my friends, and, and I'm just going to step aside from this one. But he carries on. And did I think he managed to shift the position of any of the 25 people or so who were sitting on that committee? I don't think he made the slightest difference whatsoever. Mm -hmm. The guys who came from California and New York and northeastern United States, they were completely comfortable with climate change science. They accepted it. Their, their point of view was purely and simply, what are we going to do about this? Mm. And the guys who were from, you know, Oklahoma and Alabama, their point of view was, this is crap and we don't want to know anything about it and um, we don't believe it. And if we did believe mm. it, we wouldn't want to do anything about it because too many jobs are on the line. Yeah. Then there was the amazing statement by the chair of the committee that science is not an objective journal, which I have to say did stop. Everybody in their tracks for a moment, including me, you know. So this is the chair of the committee, the science committee of the Congress of the United States, and he's sitting there telling me that science is not an objective journal. Okay, right, well, we're lost. (laughs) Yeah, in in this context, and I think it's, yeah, most of the scientists don't receive that training for for communication. In in Australia, and so since you moved here, so what have you seen as the kind of the biggest challenges for Australia to adapt? And, you know, if it's different sectors or with extreme events? I think Australia is, is it's a really, in, it's quite interesting what's happening here, but it, you can't, it's quite hard to pin down. That's probably mm. true everywhere, I think. But what you what you find in Australia is that it sits much closer to the reality of climate change in many ways. Mm. So, um, actually, someone from the Met Office asked me to write a, a forward of a, a big report on three EU contracts. When I was trying to think, well, what do you say? You know, I've just got one page of A4, what am I going to talk about? So I did talk about the difference between what's happening here and what's happening in the 
uh, in Europe, and it came through quite strongly in, in just a very sort of superficial reading of the report, that in Europe it's all much more measured, you, you know, that they're talking about, oh, well, uh, the models are telling us this, and in 30 or 40 years we expect this amount of warming, and probably the rainfall will do this, and, mm, you know, it might be a bit tricky, and we'll have to think about what crops we're growing here. And it's all quite, in, in a way, it's almost quite academic, mm. you know, whereas here, it's not academic at all. It's, oh, my God, look at the bushfires in Tasmania this year. Look at the heat wave in Sydney. Look at what's happening in Perth. It hasn't rained, you know, to any extent for 20 years. What are we going to do? So in a way, in Australia, it's a much more immediate thing. Mm. And it's almost that, okay, there are sceptics out there in Australia. There might even be a few more sceptics than there are in Europe, although I wouldn't necessarily think that that's the case. But over and above that scepticism, or in parallel with that scepticism, there's an awful lot of people saying, well, actually, we don't care what's causing it, but we reckon that it's going to continue like this. And so we need to do something mm. about it. So it's quite it's the thinking like, in Australia yeah. is quite conflicted in a way, mm. but no one actually addresses that, mm. which isn't necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, yeah you can, if you think climate change is nonsense, okay, you can go on thinking about thinking that. But actually, what I'm going to do <laughs> is uh, I'm not going to think about that. I'm actually going to think about what I'm going to do about my house because I think bushfire is going to happen more often and those trees are a bit close, so maybe I have to think about, mm, maybe I have to replace them with something that's not so fire-prone, you know. And, mm. Yeah, I'm going to do something. So I think in Australia, yeah, it, it, so it's almost, there's a lot of stuff that's going on under the radar, I think, in Australia. Well, it sounds almost like it's more experience-based. It's, you know, people have to have to deal in daily lives with the actual, yeah, the actual events already. And so I think it's, maybe it's easier to explain also, you know, adaptation in that context that there's lots of things people can do, but you don't have yeah. to wait for 30 or 40 years on it. Yeah, well, I think that's right. But then, then I think, the, so the, the real challenge here in Australia is around short term and long term. And how is it so? Because, of course, as you well know, probably better than I do, you know, short term solutions can turn out to be maladaptive in the longer term. Mm. So I think that's the big challenge for Australia to make sure that there's a recognition that uh, when people make decisions, that they're planning for the longer term and for the mm. reality that this is a changed world. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's not just El Nino and it's all going to go back to normal. Mm. So just thinking about, you know, the bridge at Oxenford that goes up to Mount Tambourine. I don't know if you've been there, but there's a very nice new bridge okay. that got washed out in the last floods, just totally destroyed. Mm. You know, and you look at it and you think, well, actually there's absolutely no point in putting that back the way it is mm. or was. You've really got to think about how you're going to make it more robust to increase mm. uh, intensity of flooding. Um, they haven't done anything yet, so my guess is that there are people in the council or whoever's responsible thinking, yes, we actually have to find some mm. money to build us back better. Because mm. it's a major route up to, yeah. up to Tam. It is the major route from yeah, no, I, yeah, up to Tambourine, not, yeah. which is a big community. No, it so is. now they have to go wandering around yeah. there. <laughs> How <laughs> to get up? Yeah, it's that practical aspect mm. of, of um, adaptation. But the important thing I think for Australia is the short term, long term, mm. and making sure that that what you do in the short term 
addresses what's yeah. likely to happen in the long term is maladaptive. And so I was also thinking if, if you could tell a little bit about Coast Adapts, because I think that's one of the big um, projects that NCOP has been working on with the different levels of government. Yes. Coast Adapts takes half the budget at the present time, mm. um, and it's coming to an end now. So, And it's interesting. that So the scene shifts quite quickly. So three years ago, the federal government was looking at what was happening with sea level rise and coastal adaptation and thinking a couple of things. One, the responsible people are local governments. Two, quite a lot of local governments in Australia don't have very much money. And actually, so actually they're poorly resourced both financially and in terms of their capacity, Mm. their human capacity. And three, they're not getting a lot of help from the state governments to adapt. Mm. So bearing in mind those three things, what are we going to do? So then the federal government thinking, well, actually, we can't interfere directly because, you know, it's the responsibility of the mm. states, but they're actually not doing very much. No. Um, so what can we do? And I think so what they thought is, well, one thing we can do while we're thinking about this a bit more is we can give some money to NCARF and tell them to develop some kind of information resource that will help mm. local governments that are poorly resourced to at least begin to get to grips with the issue of sea level rise and what it might mean for that council, what their risk Mm. is, how they can work with the community and what options there are for them to adapt, how much that might cost them, how feasible is it, Mm. how long will it protect them for, etc., etc., all those questions that that are on the table. Mm. So I think that was the initial thinking. Interestingly, over time, in the three years that we've been working on Coast Adapt, the, there's been a shift in who is doing what and mm. who is active in the space of adaptation. So you now, now find that you've got a federal government that is so obsessed with energy policy that it doesn't have a lot of time to think about actually the adaptation mm. aspects of uh, the Paris Agreement and, and um managing climate change and you've got a bunch of state governments who actually are addressing Mm, the issue of climate change quite actively so if you take the case of queensland three years ago under the the government of that time which shall be nameless um there was you could not mention the words Mm. climate change now we have a government that's you know allocated $14 $14 million, to, which isn't a huge amount, but actually can go quite a long time away in the context of Queensland. It's allocated $14 million for coastal adaptation and in particular local governments to develop mm. strategies for managing sea level rise. So okay. it's been a huge shift mm. in who's doing what um, and who's thinking about climate change. So, But <laughs> while that shift has taken place, Coast Adapt has been plodding along, yeah. uh, following the pathway that was set out in the development plan way back, you know, that was written two and a half years ago. So where does that leave Coast Adapt? Well, there are still a lot of councils that are not particularly well-resourced to think about climate change. Um, so there is a value to it, but 
probably the audience for Coast Adapt has shifted over those three years. I think it's now more of a resource for local governments to use to talk to their communities in order to make Mm. sure that everybody has the necessary knowledge to be able to think about and talk sensibly about what are we going to do about climate change and sea level rise because local governments cannot move without community support no, they just no. will be in such trouble if they try yeah. so i think coast adapt is increasingly over time it will become a resource as a basis for community engagement mm. and are you with because i know i had a look at the coast adapt website and the resources and the tools and it's do you have a, some kind of, well, we have a listing like a community members or who do the people sign up for Coast Adapt? Or? No, no, people don't sign up for Coast Adapt. It just sits there because mm. we've never, uh, it's never been clear whether there would be, like all these things, there would be long-term funding mm. for Coast Adapt. Yeah. So it had to be a resource that you could actually or almost leave alone. Well, mm. it will never be that because you've always got to manage the links yeah. and so forth. But with minimal resources, mm. it could just be there and be useful to people. Yeah. So we've never made it something that people have to sign up to in order to mm. use. It just is. And the whole thing is open. Okay. So I uh, just think talking a little bit about what Coast Adapt is, you know, it's, so it tries to cover off on pretty much all areas of climate change that would concern people living along the coast. Mm. So it has an emphasis on sea level rise, but it also looks at things like heat waves and, you know, the effects on agriculture of climate change and so on. But the, the primary focus is sea level rise, and it, it sort of divides off into five areas. So there's an area on what is climate change, then there's an area on the impacts, mm then on understanding what adaptation is and then on undertaking adaptation and then finally there's a community forum that can bring people together. Okay. That community forum in the end, if we're not refunded to work on Coast Adapt, we will shut it down. Oh, okay. Because it is, uh, we monitor it. So in, in your role in as a director of NCOF, you've obviously, you know, you've engaged with so many different groups. Are there any what we could coin as success stories on adaptation in Australia, something really innovative that you've seen, whether it's local government or communities or state governments? Is there anything that springs to mind might might be useful? So innovative. I don't know how innovative you want to be with <laughs> um, or, or, or if we just limit ourselves to good practice, maybe. Uh, there's some interesting stories. So, mm. I mean, Coast Adapt itself has 67 case studies in it, yeah. so they're worth a, a look. But, you know, the ones that interest me, so if you just talk about local governments, there's some local governments that are working down in Victoria that are, are beginning to use the pathways approach okay. to adaptation, and they're using that as an engagement mechanism for their communities. So they're getting their communities together and they're saying, well, you know, I mean, what what would you be prepared? So they set the thresholds in the adaptation pathway mm. based on community uh, sort of expectations. So you say to your community, okay, so supposing that the foreshore was um, flooded four times a year and you were unable to access the beach, how would you feel about that? Would you be prepared to put up with that? Okay, four times a year, ten times a year, 
20 caps a year. Mm. So there's a point at which people say, well, actually, no, mm. that's just too much. And yeah. then you can set mm. your threshold there and oh, say, okay. okay, so that's the point at which when that happens, we're going to have to do something. So now what are the options open to mm. us to address that problem of flooding? And you can set up a whole, so you can say, okay, so the high street, you know, Sea level rise suggests to us that actually inundation of the high street would become a problem. This is what the problem would look like. Be prepared to put up with that. Possibly, well, this is what it'll look like in 2060. How do you feel about that? (laughs) (laughs) So pathways have a number of advantages. The approach, I think, is a very powerful one. Mm. And I don't think it's one that we fully explored. But... For many local councils in Australia, what it represents is a basis for opening a conversation with the community that may be feeling very worried about climate Mm. change, unable to understand what it means, uh, not knowing what the options are, so just feels generally a bit panicky about Mm. the whole thing. And it's a way for local councils to say, look, you know, you don't need to panic. It's not today's problem Sea level rise is going to be an issue going forward, but we've got, you know, a decade or so to think about this before we really need to move. But we need you guys on side. We can't move Mm. without without your agreement and your support. So let's start to have a conversation about Mm. this. And quite a number of councils are beginning to see that that's the way that you open a dialogue. I mean, there are some examples of really stupid things that councils have done where they've put up their inundation mapping on their public website and not had any community warning that this was mm. going to happen and the whole community when they found out that it's there <laughs> just gone, you know, I mean look that's my house <laughs> it's underwater and you never told me mm. you know, so really not a sensible thing to do other councils are saying We've done this inundation mapping. Come and have a look at it. Yeah, this is what it's telling us. Mm. But it's not tomorrow. Mm. You know, it's, yeah. it's 40 years down the line, so let's talk about what's possible. Mm. Let's talk about who's going to pay. How are we yes. going to manage this? Because, yeah. you know, of course, it's a huge yeah. question. Every international yeah. is who pays. Yeah. No, I think and it's, it's in Australia in particular because the local governments get their rates from yeah. from people and from the property values as well. Yeah. So I think that's you know the legal kind of risk and ramifications of inundation is is a big issue. Well, it that's is, all yeah. con- concern for people. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, then there is the issue not to be forgotten of uh, in Queensland the Aboriginal Shire councils who have no rate base because mm. all their housing is publicly owned. So. How do they manage? So that, yeah. that is a question that we're beginning to think a little bit about. Mm. Well, that's, yeah, no, that's interesting. I haven't actually even been aware of that. Mm. I wanted to ask you also on so what your views are. I mean, because we have the Paris Agreement. Obviously, most countries have, have ratified that. Yeah. Uh, and there has been discussion on, on the global adaptation goal, and I think Australia will also is required to do the national adaptation plan. Yep. So have there been 
have there been any talk on what that might look like or no, well not to my knowledge but mm. i'm not sure i would know yeah. so, <laughs> yeah. so it doesn't mean that there hasn't been mm. a conversation about it i mean at the moment you've got i don't know if you've had a look at it but there's the climate policy mm. review that's going on at the present time mm. i don't know have you had a look at no, that? no I well it, it from where we sit, yeah. it's worth having a look because if you take the uh, the draft review, which mm. is now on the government website and open okay. for comment, mm. if you do a search, adaptation is not mentioned once in that document. Not once. It is entirely about the mitigation okay. side. So probably worth putting in mm. a, a, a commentary to the review so making a submission and just not a long submission just a submission that says this is an astounding document (laughs) it doesn't mention (laughs) adaptation one of the strengths of the paris agreement is that it really brings Mm. adaptation to the forefront so it's rather sad to see that this climate policy Mm. review is not looking at adaptation Mm. at all so I don't, I'm sure that someone somewhere is thinking, yes, we have to do something about this yes. national adaptation plan business, but <laughs> well, I'm sure it will happen and the hey. box will be ticked. Yes, hopefully. Yeah. All right, well, thanks so much for your time. You're welcome. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap to this episode. Thanks to Jeremy Clark and Charlie Abrams. I'm inspired by their actions, and I hope they keep it up. We'll need more of that activism in the coming years. And thanks to Johanna and Dr. Politikoff. Australia is doing some really innovative adaptation work, and we'll continue to highlight it here. I'm also in negotiations to include another occasional segment from another continent and their adaptation efforts. So stay tuned. See if that comes together. Okay, some final housekeeping. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Dabs and ask to join, and I'll prove you right away. It's a chance to hear insider info on the podcast and see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. And check out the new website at americadabs.org. All this information is in my show notes. Links to the website, links to the donate page, all that information. So if you're on your phone, just look down at the show notes, and it's all there. Okay. Adapters, I hope you all have a great week and until next time. You got a light, buddy? Yeah, sure, kid. There you go. And your wallet. Nick, give him your wallet. What for? He's got a knife. (laughs) That's not a knife. That's a knife.